Welcome. Your journey starts with improving every aspect of your life. Let's Talk Corlicious Leave Room for Dessert podcast is about discovering your true potential, overcoming your fears, and fighting life like the brave warrior that you are. Be sure to hit the like, comment, and follow button. Your host, Miss V, the Core of Life coach, has over 20 years of military and personal life experiences transforming lives from a caterpillar to a butterfly and bringing on the top influencers, successful entrepreneurs, thought leaders, and more who are rock stars in life, business, and relationships. On days when everything seems overwhelming, someone must remind you that there is light at the end of the tunnel. And with rain comes rainbows. What seems difficult to swallow today is exactly where you'll derive your strength from on the days to come. You are greater than your fears and braver than you seem. Miss V, the core life coach, shares how the hurdles of today will build your tomorrow if you take the right road. Your brighter future demands that you can step up now and change the game for yourself. Room for Dessert Podcast with Miss B, the Core Life Coach on BBSRadio.com. In this groundbreaking and transformative podcast experience, we will embark on a journey of personal growth, resilience, and triumph unlike any other. In episode six, get ready for a powerful exploration of invaluable lessons that will captivate you with unwavering wisdom, inspire you with unyielding resilience, and motivate you to unleash your own inner strength. Let's Talk Holicious is a platform dedicated to igniting your potential and propelling you towards becoming a true rock star in every aspect of your life through thought-provoking discussions on personal growth life, and business. We will unlock the secrets to unlocking your full potential. In our segment, Leave Room for Dessert, we will share the gems of rock stars who have conquered life, business, and relationships with unwavering resilience. Prepare to be inspired by their stories and learn from their triumphs. As Miss V, the Core Life Coach, I am here to guide you on a transformative journey from a mere caterpillar to a butterfly. Together, we will unravel the layers of self-discovery, empowering you to embrace your true potential and soar to new heights. I'm a coach wearing many hats. As the first African-American Iraq War veteran to grace the TEDx stage on June 10, 2021, I have shattered barriers and redefined what is possible. My success is rooted in resilience that has propelled me forward. Today, the spotlight is on our esteemed guest, Haywood Galbraith. His name commands respect and admiration as he has overcome countless obstacles and defied the odds throughout his life. As a master for Journal, proto, I'm sorry, photojournalist, he has captured the essence of pivotal
pivotal moment in history, leaving an indelible mark on our society. From the iconic O.J. Simpson trial to other significant events, Hayward's powerful images serves as a visual testament to the impact and significance of these moments. His journey is one of resilience and determination, and we are honored to have him here today. So without further ado, let's embark on this extraordinary episode today. Get ready to be inspired, motivated, and transformed as we delve into Haywood Gallery's incredible story and the lessons he has learned along the way. Welcome to the podcast, Haywood Gallery. Good afternoon, evening. Good to be here. Awesome. The stage is set, the spotlight is on you, and the world is ready to hear your powerful voice. Let's begin with this unforgettable journey of resilience and triumph. I'm going to start with the first question. Can you tell us about your early recognition of the power of media in shaping public perception and how it influenced your career choices? Yes, I can. Uh, my earliest recollection of the power of media came when I was about 10 years old, um, I was living with my grandmother, um, and I was watching a news program, and they they had a segment on that said black men aren't with their families. And I sat there and I watched that segment. And when the segment went off, I just kind of stared at the television set, and I basically said, that's a lie. That's not true. They are. It's just that certain things had to be done in the black community in regards to black men and their families. And I will all, I will go to my grave saying, I heard the voice of God say, you see what you just saw. In the years go by, this is the medium that will be used for people to determine what they think about people. And right then and there, I decided, I didn't know it was a photojournalist at that time. I decided I wanted to be a person who takes pictures and captures moments in history so that I could tell the truth about my people and about other people. And it started from there, and that's where it started from. That's my earliest recollection of how powerful images are. And also I'll add to that, and that was during the time of the Civil Rights Movement, and I began to see images on television and pay more attention to images and the power and realize the power that they had. Wow. How did you cha- how did you challenge the mainstream media's coverage of African Americans, and what were some of the positive outcomes of your efforts? Well, when I finally when I grew up and left my little hometown of Mayfield, Kentucky, uh, population I always joke about it population ten thousand, but there's only nine thousand nine hundred ninety nine till I get back. Um, I went to Florida and I started my career in journalism. I started at WSVN7 uh, in Miami, Fort Lauderdale. And going out on assignment, what I saw was quite often the media would, uh, we would do ride-alongs with law enforcement and they would do these drug busts. 
and I always saw black guys getting busted, white guys getting busted, others getting busted, guys that were driving BMWs and uh, Mercedes-Benz getting busted. But when you turned on the television to watch the uh, news program that night, all you saw getting busted was the black guys. When you picked up the newspaper the next day, all you saw getting busted was the black guys. And I'm like, wait a minute, man, there was white guys getting busted too. Where were they at? So what I started doing, I started going, I started complaining to my news editors. I'm like, whoa, this is wrong. There were white guys that got busted. Why aren't they on TV? And then I started complaining to the newspapers uh, the same thing. Where's the white guys that got busted? And so... At the same time, the Miami Herald, which is one of the uh, most prestigious newspapers in the country, they had started using my image, some images that I was capturing of Spot News, and I started going to the photo editor. I'm like, wait a minute, y'all. There were white guys that got busted. What's going on here? And they paid attention to what I said, and they started putting more positive images of uh, black people in the paper and more images of when... They were more fair about it. When white guys got busted, they, they wound up in the paper. And one of the things that the Miami Herald did was they, they had this campaign talking about what the paper was doing. And they used me on one of their posters that they put inside the newspaper. As a matter of fact, I, I, I have one of those posters uh, that talked about the job that the Miami Herald was doing. And then I complimented them on the fact that they were doing a more fair job of showing the black community the way it really was. And so that was one of the um, positive things that I did when I was in Miami, Fort Lauderdale, and then I came to Los Angeles, and the same thing started happening. But, of course, I went to work for a black newspaper out here, so I was able to show more positive, the more positive aspect, aspect of black life. Okay, that leads me into my next question. What motivates you to become the personal photographer, bodyguard, and assistant to Philip Michael Thomas of Miami Vice fame? Um, that's another interesting thing. When when I was a little boy, my mama took a subscription to Ebony uh, and Jet magazine, and I never will forget, I saw this picture of George Wallace at a football game. And I saw this black guy there, and he spoke about that that was George Wallace's bodyguard. And you're talking about a juxtaposition and a situation. I'm like, this man didn't want black people to achieve, but yet he has a black bodyguard protecting him. And I always had an affinity for law enforcement. The only other thing I wanted to be beside an actor, a stuntman, and a photojournalist was a Kentucky State Trooper. And I almost became one, and the powers that be prevented that from happening, and that's when I knew I had to leave town. But when I went to Fort Lauderdale, I got into the acting business, and I had the privilege of becoming an actor on the television series Miami Vice. I became friends with Philip, and I was also, like I said, capturing images, and I captured a couple of images of him. I think it was uh, 
James Brown and got him in the paper and stuff. And he asked me if I wanted to be his photographer. And then because I had that law enforcement type attitude, he asked me if I wanted to be his bodyguard as well. And I said, yeah. And I traveled with him across the country. As a matter of fact, he was the first person to bring me to Los Angeles. And so uh, I became his bodyguard, his uh, personal photographer, and I also acted on the show with him. And one of the little funny stories is when Philip decided to grow a beard uh, the summer that we traveled, first traveled together, he decided to grow a beard like I had a beard. And when we came back to the show that fall, he didn't cut his beard off. And so when we would do scenes, they wouldn't let Philip and I stand beside each other with our beards. I had to be on the other side of the room. I could stand beside Don, but I couldn't stand beside Philip. And Philip remarked to me that uh, the sight of two black men with beards like we had was just too powerful. So they had to break us up. And it was kind of funny about that, but that's, that's what led me to become his bodyguard, his personal photographer. Uh, I was already working on the show with him and I captured some images of him and James Brown that got in jet magazine. And he saw my, how I enjoyed, uh, being a, playing a cop. And, uh, I had this attitude of a bodyguard. So, he brought me in to be his bodyguard as well. All right. That was a very interesting story that you shared. Could you elaborate on your advocacy against the use of white stunt performers for black actors and actresses and how it opened doors for other African-American stunt performers and photographers? Yes. On, on Miami Vice, and that was one of the things throughout the years of the in the industry, the entertainment industry, that they would use white stunt performers and that they would paint down. And there was a big uproar about it here in Hollywood, which is where I live now in Hollywood, Los Angeles, Hollywood. Uh, there was a big uproar uh, in the early 70s, I believe, that they were painting down white stunt performers to be the stunt person for black actors and actresses and I became close to a couple of black stunt people out here so on Miami Vice uh, we were fighting for the opportunity to get to be stunt people and they were reluctant to let us be stunt people and then I saw that they were painting down white stunt performers which I knew was a no-no so I made the phone call to Los Angeles about it and uh, some studio execs and Philip uh, complained about the fact that uh, that that's what they were doing when we had qualified stunt black stunt people to do the stunts. And what happened was the stunt coordinator got angry at me. He found out I did it, uh, but they had to use black stunt performers. I did get to do a couple of stunts, but after that they blocked me. Uh, but other black stunt performers were brought in to do stunts for black actors that were appearing on the show that had stunts. And that was what I wanted to happen, that other black stunt performers would get opportunities. I, I, I didn't like it that 
they took the opportunities away from me, but hey, that's the price you pay sometimes when you stand up uh, and fight the fight for opportunities. And I knew that when I did it. But other stunt performers got the opportunity to do stunts. Uh, when it comes to photojournalists, uh, I, I was blackballed in the industry uh, for my advocacy, but they did the same thing. They brought other black photographers in to give them opportunities, and, and that's what it was all about. That's what I feel like God uh, put me in position to do. I was strong enough to take, uh, to stand in the storm that comes with it, to take being blackballed. So if, if that's what happens, that's what happens. But the door is open for others to get the opportunities they want to have. And that's what it's all about. And even though I've been denied certain opportunities, it has not stopped me. Uh, I have a career and a resume that's second to none because God opened the doors that needed to be opened for me. I love that when you said standing in the storm. Let's segue into can you share your experience of challenging the system of photo pools and fighting for the inclusion of black-owned news organizations in the coverage of the Simpson murder trial? You know, it's, a lot of people don't know about what happens in the news industry. There, there, there's just something, you may hear it, hear them talk about it on television sometimes. This is a pool, or you may see it in the newspaper. You'll see an image of a major news event, and it'll say pool photo. What that means is that there was so much media attention and not enough room for everybody, so they, they pick one person, one news organization to take the photos, and that news organization sends them out to everybody. In Los Angeles, the, the situation is that on each day of the week, Monday through Friday, they have a designated news organization that will take the pictures of a major news event uh, and send them out. Well, first of all, there was no black news organizations in that system. So I challenged them. Uh, and when it came to the O.J. Simpson trial, my thing has always been this. There is actually enough room in certain situations, and I don't think that black news organizations should be put in a position of having to get their images from white news organizations knowing what I know about how they cover black people and how they tend to make black people look bad. That's one aspect of it. The other aspect of it is news organizations in this day and time, and it really started with the O.J. Simpson double murder trial, news organizations are not covering news events really for people's right to know. News organizations are covering news events for their rights to make money. And when it came to the O.J. Simpson double murder trial, that's one of the things they said, well, if you're in here, it lowers our chances of making money. And I'm like, I didn't think this was really about making money anyway. I thought it was about people's right to know. You know, and when I would say stuff like that, they'd get upset. So we had this big meeting. They, they, they called a big meeting because of me to find out if we could be, the black press could be part of their photo pool. So we go downtown to the Associated Press, 
And, and I had been around them at that time for at least 10 years, I think. So I knew how they operated, and I had done some freelance work for some of them, and they loved my work. But when it came to this, when we had the meeting, they was telling me, well, we don't think you're good enough to get the images that we need. And I'm like, wait a minute, hold on. Didn't I shoot some stuff for you? Yes. Didn't you say it was good? Yeah. So now you're telling me I'm not good enough and there's not enough room. And so I kept coming up with these ideas about how we could all work together. And what they didn't realize when I was doing that is what I was telling them that we could do was what they were already doing with each other. And every time I would tell them what we could do, somebody in the group would say, oh, no, we can't do it like that. So I finally said, I like, okay. I said, everything that I've told you that we could do together that you said we couldn't do is stuff that you're already doing with each other. But you just really don't want to work with us, and I see that. So i tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to get up. I'm going to leave this meeting. A couple of them said, oh, no, don't leave. Don't get dead man leave. I said, no, because what you're telling me is that you really don't want to work with us. And then I kind of went out on a limb, and I said, i tell you what. I'm leaving, but this is what I want you to understand before I leave. Old white men aren't going to run this show completely anymore. And I said, y'all have a good day, and I'm leaving. So I left the meeting, and uh, like 24 hours later, I get a phone call from the owner of the black newspaper, and he said, hey, would, uh, the judge, one of the judges from downtown just called me and said that Judge Ito, and Judge Ito was the one who was going to be the presiding judge over the trial, that Judge Ito just said that because they didn't want to work with us, that he was going to give us our own position in the courtroom. And I said, well, that's what I wanted us to have anyway. I didn't think that we should have to uh, work with them. And so when I went to court, I, I met Judge Ito. And what I found out was that there was a lady that was there from the court, the court uh, liaison, and she went back to Judge Ito and told Judge Ito that uh, they didn't want to work with the black press. And that Judge Ito said, okay, they don't want to work with the black press. I'll give them their own spot. And so he gave us our own spot, and there was a lot of things that I found, a lot of conditions that I didn't know to that spot that I didn't find out two years later when the trial was over with. Like I couldn't miss a day that if I missed a day, the spot was going to be taken away. Nobody ever told me that, but I wasn't in, intending on missing a day anyway. And, and what happened was that because of the way it was set up, there were three different photo pool positions in the courtroom. One was the magazine pool, one was the daily pool, and then there was the black press pool. And what happened was I wound up, even though there were three different photographers every day in the courtroom representing a different news organization, my organization was representing the uh, Black Press of America, the NPPA, uh, NNPA, 
National Newspaper Publishers Association, which is made up of black, 213 black-owned newspapers throughout the country and the Caribbean. Uh, I wound up being the only photographer in the courtroom every day from one news organization. I have the only complete record of the trial taken by one photographer. I took over 18,000 photos and at least... uh, Photos wound up in several books. One of my photos wound up on the cover of O.J.'s book. Uh, one of my photos made the L.A. Times when they was running their newspaper, stop running their newspaper, like at 1 o'clock in the morning, take the picture they had on the front page off and put my picture on it. And the next day, the prosecution saw my picture on the front page when they was looking at the paper that morning, and they cut it out of the newspaper and came and used it as evidence in the trial. And I think that was something that was unprecedented, that a picture taken in the courtroom during a trial uh, had never been used before uh, as evidence, but the prosecution used that picture as evidence. Wow, that's very historic. Could you share some memorable experiences as an official photographer for, for President Barack Obama? George Bush Jr., William Clinton, George Bush Sr., and Ronald Reagan? Uh, Ronald Reagan was the first person, first president that I uh, had the privilege of being a photographer because I was the photographer for uh, Senator Connie Mack's campaign out of Florida. His father owned... uh, the baseball, a baseball team in Chicago. Uh, and so Senator Connie Mack was in, running, and I was his photographer. And I started Dress Down Fridays before Dress Down Fridays started. You know, at the time, I didn't know that you were supposed to dress up and wear a suit when you were going to be with the president. So I came in my regular sh- slacks and shirt. <laughs> Because and the other part of that was I was working on Miami Vice, okay? And Miami Vice was so big that President Reagan had asked for Don and Philip to come to the White House. That's how big Miami Vice was. So we were the hottest thing going in the country, Miami Vice. So we we was like we was just kinda cocky about it. Like, yeah, yeah, that's the president, but I'm working on Miami Vice, hey. So I was with the president and I was taking pictures. And it was two of us. There was another photographer, and he wanted his picture taken with the president, so I said, okay, I'll do it. So when we got through taking the pictures of the other people, he stepped over the ropes, and the president took the picture with him. And so he called me. Uh, the, the guy said, going up, I said, nah, because I didn't think it was cool to do it. And the president, President Reagan, said, no, come on up here, take your picture with me. I said, nah, that's okay. And... uh then his people said, no, go on up. Or I said, okay, if that's what y'all want me to do, all right. So I'm kind of mischievous at times. Anybody oh. knows, knows that? Yes. So I said, I'm about to have me some fun with the Secret Service to myself. So I went up there and I stood beside the president and the Secret Service was watching and everything. So just before we took the picture, I took my arm and put it around the president's waist and I pulled him close to me. And I saw the Secret Service make a move, but 
I'm like, y'all not going to shoot me today because y'all might hit the prison. You know, like, nah, I ain't worried about that today. And so we took the picture and everything, and I spent the day with the president. He was very kind. You know, and I get to brag about I turned the president down. Uh, He had to ask me twice, twice, twice to take a picture. And so that was the first president I was with. And then uh, I had met uh, President Bush before when I was working at Channel 7. And I had wanted to take a picture with him, but we we got busy doing the uh, news piece. And so President Vice President Bush said, which we'll win, we'll do it then. I'm like, okay. And, and sure enough, that I'll always have admiration for him because when we got through, he said, you want to take that picture now? He remembered. And I said, nah, that's okay, because we had taken another picture with him. So I got to say no to the vice president. And then I came to California, and I got to spend the day with uh, President uh, Bill Clinton taking pictures. And that goes back to the issue of how black photojournalists are treated as opposed to white photojournalists are treated. I had the button, because they give you buttons, that you, pins that you put on your lapel that says you're with them. And mm-hmm. I was with the president. I was in the president's press pool that day. And I had the pen that said, hey, he's with the president. And so the president comes to speak at this event. And so we come out, and I go out front, and I have been told, because I had to take some pictures of him when it was over with, to not get behind. You don't stand behind the president. I'm like, okay, I know. And so we go out to take the pictures of the event, and I take the pictures, and the president goes back behind the curtain, and I have to go back behind the curtain. And the Secret Service stopped me. And I'm like, wait a minute. I'm supposed, I got to get with the president. I'm with the president. And the Secret Service guy, a white Secret Service agent, said, no, 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 you're not going. I said, but I've got the pen on. Here's the pen that says I'm with the president. No, you're not going. And on the other side of the room, the other Secret Service agent, which was a black Secret Service agent that told me what I was supposed to do, he comes from behind the curtain, and he hollers across the room, where are you? And I said, the Secret Service agent won't let me leave. Go back there. And he hollers at the Secret Service agent. He's with us. Let him go. And so he, the Secret Service agent relents. I go back there. I'm taking the pictures. Now, I've been told that I'm not supposed to be behind the president. So, but President Clinton keeps turning his back to me. Every time I take a shot, he turns his back. So I'm bouncing around, like, and he's not really supposed to be moving a lot either. But I'm having to move a lot because the president keeps turning his back to me, and I've been told not to be behind the president. So that was one of the funny little days, days and funny things that happened. And he was very polite. He spoke when he came out and shook my hand and everything. And then uh, President Obama, I was his president. I was his photographer for a day out here in Los Angeles. And he actually wrote me a letter Mm. uh, and said, thank you very much for being my photographer and being so nice. And I got it framed. And I was covering a couple of campaign events. And I made a poster of him at one of his events. And I took it to another campaign event. And he actually signed it. It's a 12 by 18 poster I made. I took, and so the people would know that that was actually his signature. 
I took a picture of him signing the poster. Uh, and another incident I had with Michelle uh, Obama, I was a photographer with her for a day, and uh, Secret Service wouldn't let me follow her either, and I had the pin on that I was supposed to have on. And, and it, it's, it's very disturbing when you see white photojournalists giving carte, carte blanche and these white Secret Service agents saying, yeah, letting them just do what they do. And I had this white female Secret Service agent. I had the pin on that I was with Michelle, and she wouldn't let me move, and she was letting all these other white photojournalists move around, take the pictures, and she told me, if you take another step, I'm going to have you arrested. I said, but I'm with Michelle, and I got the pin on. I don't care. And so somebody had to come out from back when Michelle went back to the back. It had to come get me. And, and that's the type of stuff that I've had to deal with throughout my career. Uh, being denied even when I'm supposed to be there, when I got all the credentials I'm supposed to have. Being denied uh, the same equal access. And President George Bush II was coming out here for uh, the uh, anniversary of the of the riots, and uh, they had made a pool situation. And there wasn't. It, he was coming to South Los Angeles, and they did not. They weren't going to permit any black press to be with him. So I, I called the White House, and I've been known to call the White House. And I called the White House, and I talked to the uh, liaison, and the liaison said, "Well." There's nothing I'm going to do. Yeah, it's wrong, but there's nothing I'm going to do, and I'm going to get on a plane. I said, okay, I'll tell you what. You go get on your plane. I guarantee you by the time y'all get to Los Angeles, y'all going to have some bad press. So I, hung, I said, okay, and I hung up the phone. Ten minutes later, the phone rang, call ID comes up, the White House. Okay. Like, uh -huh. Hello, is this Haywood? Yes, this is Haywood. Well, you know, we thought about it, and so when the president comes, this is what we're going to do for you. We want you to come to the airport. We're going to put you in the press pool of the president, and you're going to get to ride in the press pool with the president to the, to the location of First AME Church, which is the big black church out here. Uh, but you can't go to Westwood to the other. And I'm like, I didn't want to go there anyway. I wanted to be where he was going, dealing with uh, the black community. That's who I cover mainly. And they said, okay. So I went to the airport, and I, it, and I was standing out there, and Air Force One landed, and the guy came over and said, where's Haywood at? I said, this is me. He said, come with me. And he took me to... Uh, the president's press pool that just came off the plane and got in the van. And I had been joking with a couple of friends. I said, what am I going to do if when we leave the airport, all the cars turn one way, but the car they put me in turns another way? And they're going to beat me up for, for raising all that cane that I raised. And we just joked about it. And so, but it didn't turn the opposite direction. And, and only in Los Angeles. And they made a big, big to-do about that on the news. Only in Los Angeles does the president get
get caught in a traffic jam. Mm. Because the president is not supposed to get, the president's motor pool is not supposed to be slowed down or caught in a traffic jam. Well, on the way from the airport, the president's motorcade got stuck in a traffic jam, okay? And then mm-hmm. I said to myself, because there's these movies with Harrison Ford where they blow up, you know, they attack the president and everything, and they blow up all these SUVs. They, they get them in this little spot, and they start blowing them up. And I said, only you, Haywood, would get yourself in a situation because where the motorcade got stopped at was this part that the freeway goes down, and there's these big, tall walls beside it. And I said, I'll be dang, the day I get in the motor pool is the day that they're going to blow it up. And I said, me and my mouth. <laughs> Uh, but it but it didn't happen, and we made it to where we were going. And so that's another one of my stories about being with the president and stuff. Only I could get in the motorcade that gets in a traffic jam. Yes. Okay. Well, and to how do you think the media industry can continue to improve in terms of diversity and inclusion? Oh, that's kind of simple. First of all, they can start hiring more black journalists because one of the things that's been happening in the past several years with these buyouts in newsrooms and these newsrooms cutting down goes back to the last hire, the first to go thing that we always talk about as far as black people go is there's been a lot of black journalists that have been let go of from these news organizations. So what they can do, if they really want to do what is right and not be about no affirmative action, but do what is right, do what is morally right. See, because I don't play on the politic, political stuff. I look at life from people doing what is morally right. If they want to do what is morally right, they'll bring in more qualified black journalists, but not only black journalists. Asian journalists, Hispanic journalists, journalists of color. And they'll let them go and they'll give them the best stories like they give the white journalists. Let them make names for themselves. Because nobody, and here's the thing, nobody can tell a people's story better than that people. You can't go to a neighborhood and spend two or three days and then come back and talk about, we're going to tell you the story about this neighborhood and about these people. It doesn't work that way. Because you don't have something in you invested in that people. You just dare to do a story. You don't know what that people's been through and what they go through and why they do what they do. So you need to have people that look like the people of color that you're doing the story on. So that's what they can do. They can bring in more people of color, give more opportunities that way. And in regards to telling the story, they can tell the story of people of color more truthfully about why they do what they do, how they have actually been treated. You know, this ain't about rewriting history. This ain't about uh, the 1619 Project. This is about doing what is morally right and telling the story of why. When it, especially when it comes to black people, why they do what they do the way they do it and what has truly been done to them that makes them feel the way they feel 
and do what they do. So that's what the media can do. They can tell the story more truthfully. They can bring in more journalists of color and permit them to go cover major stories involving people of color and also stories involving white America and let them make names for themselves and go out and give them anchor positions on news programs and these other shows that they have and let American people, mainly white Americans, because people of color know what we can do, let white America see that people of color are intelligent people, are good people, and that they can handle being out front. Awesome, awesome, awesome. I love it how you say tell the story truthfully. How can you share any specific stories, or should I say can you share any specific stories or photographs that you are particularly proud of which challenge stereotypes and promoted positive images of African Americans? There are several um, to kind of put them in order, uh, the first would be Nelson Mandela. I had the opportunity to be uh, one of his photographers after he was released from prison and came to Los Angeles. And um, that's another situation where, as a black photojournalist, I'm supposed to be this... I'm supposed to be with the person, but the people from the State Department, and which were mainly white Americans and law enforcement in Los Angeles, kept pushing me around and not really letting me capture the images that I was there to capture, while at the same time letting the white photographers. And, and I got so frustrated that uh, we went to this big event over... Uh, by USC, and there was a lot of celebrities there, Bill Cosby, uh, Sidney Poitier, you name them, they were there, and I was taking their pictures, and I actually left the room and went and called my girlfriend and said, can you come pick me up? They just treated me so bad. And, and as I was talking to her, this voice said, don't. Don't leave. Stick it out. And so I said to her, I said, you know what? Don't, don't worry about it. I'm going to stick it out. So we go to the L.A. Coliseum, world-famous L.A. Coliseum for the Olympics. And there was like 90,000 people in the Coliseum waiting to hear Nelson Mandela speak. And so we go up on stage, and I got to go up on stage and be with uh, Nelson Mandela, Winnie Mandela, Congresswoman Waters, everybody that was up on stage, Mary Bradley. And I'm standing up there, and I'm taking these pictures, and I'm looking at everything. And it comes over me. I said, wow, Haywood, 
if you hadn't let them run away, run you away, you wouldn't be capturing this historic moment because it was truly a historic moment. Uh, and I got these great shots. They are iconic shots of Nelson mm-hmm. Mandela speaking, uh, Winnie Mandela, Congresswoman Waters, and Mayor Bradley, all of them with their fists up in the air. It's a beautiful shot. Wow. Congresswoman Waters gave me permission to sell the photo so I could raise money for my nonprofit. Uh, but I got all these shots, and I went to Washington, D.C. One of the shots in black and white was of Winnie Mandela, and I framed it uh, 11 by 14. I framed it and took it to Washington, D.C. and gave it to Congresswoman Waters, and she loves it. And, you know, she said, yeah, and I even still got that picture you gave me in the office. And, yeah, you take that shot of, that four shot of us, and you sell it and raise money for your nonprofit. That's what you do with it. And, but the thing was, and I got this picture of this police officer looking at me like he could just knock me out. You could see it on his face. I'm like, dang. But I got some great images, and if I'd have gave up, if I'd have let them run me off, I wouldn't have captured that historic moment. And and I'm very proud of that. That's one. Uh, And another one that I'm most proud of is a picture I took of the dog whisperer, Caesar Milan. Uh, it was August, this time of year. And I was driving down the street, and I was thinking to myself, I need a, I need a photo for August, dog days of summer. I just need a photo. I need a photo. And I look up ahead about 125 yards, and I see this guy. He was walking in, in the direction that I was going, and he had like, Eight Rockweilers, four on each side. And I said, wow, that's my picture. Dog days of summer. Okay. So I drive past him about 150 yards. I jump out of my car, and I take these pictures of him. And he didn't know I was taking the pictures, so he was just being natural walking. And then he looked up, and he saw me. And I'm like, "Uh uh-oh. Because us photojournalists, we put ourselves in dangerous situations all the time, and and then we say to ourselves, oh, maybe I shouldn't have done this to myself. And I said, hey, well, what you going to do if he six them dogs on you because he didn't like you taking the pictures? I'm like, oh, hopefully he won't. And so he walks up to me and I says, hey, I'm a photojournalist. This is an awesome shot of you and these dogs. I'm going to send this paper, picture to the newspaper, Los Angeles Times. Would you please give me your name? And he said, nope, I'm not giving you my name. I said, no, it's going to be okay. I'm a photojournalist. It'll be okay. And he says, Caesar. And I didn't, I know he was hesitant and I didn't want to push him. I said, okay, thank you very much. So I went and got the film developed and I looked at the film and I come in my office. I called the Los Angeles Times. I said, man, I got this awesome picture of this guy's walking this dog. It's the dog day of summer's picture. I said, you know, it's August. I was really selling the picture. And the guys at the Los Angeles Times, they know me. I said, okay, hey, send us the picture. And so I send him the picture. And about 20 minutes later, the guy comes back, calls back and says, Hayward, that was an awesome picture. I said, I told you. And the guy said, well, we're going to run it on the front page of the local section tomorrow. Well, you got I said, the only thing the guy told me was his name was Caesar. He wouldn't give me any more. He was reluctant to, and I didn't want to push him. So I get up the next morning and get the paper, 
It's on the front page of the picture in the paper that says Caesar. Tuesday afternoon, I think it was Tuesday afternoon, he's walking these dogs, dog days of summer. And and it's like and about two hours later I get this phone call from his buddy. He said, That's my buddy. Can you give us these pictures? And I said, Yeah, but they never came and got the pictures. Fast forward and, and actually the paper called me back. They made a poster advertising the po- photo, advertising the paper, and put it on the side of the bus. They only had his legs and the dogs because they didn't have mm-hmm. his permission to use his picture, his whole picture. So they just used half the picture on the side of the bus. Flash forward to 2013. I'm at home, and I get this phone call from a producer. And they said, I'm a producer on the Brian Williams show. We're doing this feature on Cesar Milan. Cesar Milan. Uh, we want to use, the LA Times said the picture belongs to you. We want to use your picture. And the name sounded familiar, and, but I didn't really place him. I said, could you please tell me who Cesar Milan is? And they said, yeah. He's the dog whisperer, the famous dog whisperer. I'm like, Wow. And so I gave them, we made a deal for them to use the picture. So when the segment came on, they showed the picture and they was talking to him. And what I found out was that when I took this picture of him, he was an illegal immigrant. He was, okay, I won't say illegal. He was an undocumented immigrant. And he had made a deal with a guy to live in a warehouse in South Los Angeles and take these dogs walking every day. Since that time, he had came to America. He was living under a bridge in San Diego, San Diego, and then he came to Los Angeles. But since that time, he became uh, an American citizen and became famous as the dog walker. Now, here's the thing. He credits uh, the Los Angeles Times, tracked him down and did a story on him. And his career took off after that. But he credited my photo with making him famous. And that hmm. is my most famous photo, you could say, besides pictures from the O.J. Simpson trial. And I'm very proud of the fact when, when you talk about images being po- powerful, I always say images have the ability to change the course of history from a negative course to a positive course and get justice mm-hmm. for those who have been treated unjustly and bring those who treated those unjustly to justice. That's how powerful images are. And when you look back at the civil rights movement, what those images did during the civil rights movement that made America say, no, it's wrong for black Americans to be treated that way. Um, and so I'm very proud of what my images have done and, that they have made such a positive impact in different areas uh, also on those who wanted to become photojournalists. Wow, that's amazing. I would like to uh, go into give me two power words that describe you. Um, I don't know if it's just two words. I'll say this. A lover of God and his ways. Awesome. That's very powerful. Looking back on your career, 
and we've touched on it, but I want to know more. What are what are you most proud of in the terms of your contributions to the field of journalism and media representation? I'm proud that my advocacy, as far as being a photojournalist, opened the doors for more black photojournalists to get opportunities here in Los Angeles and some other places to participate. I'm proud that my advocacy opened the door for black newspapers out here and a few other places. They had the opportunity to get to cover more news events. As far as a photographer goes, I'm proud that I worked with a organization called the Inglewood Pacific Links that is a chapter that is a part of the National Links, which is a black female organization that works in the community to improve the community, especially young women, that they started a program. They had a program, a facet for two years to teach photography uh, at Inglewood High School. And they brought me in as the teacher, and it started out as a co-ed, male and female. And one year, my male students was off doing other stuff, so they didn't get to go out and shoot as much. So the coordinator from the school, Miss Clay, and I took the young black men up to Kennetown Park for them to get some images. And when we went back to the school, Ms. Clay talked to the uh, coordinators from the program and said, I want this program to become a male program because our black males need a strong male figure. And as I watched Haywood work with these boys up at the park, he has the ability to make those young men listen intensely and want to do. So we switched the program to all boys. And one of the things I'm most proud of is because I would take the young men to different places to expose them to different parts of life. And most of these young men came from single-parent homes, had to fight on the way to school sometimes, fight school and fight on the way home, and fight at home. Uh, and so I made it a point to take them to places where they could just be young men. And you should see the difference that they were when they, they were one way at school, but when I took them on these field trips, they became boys, and they were enjoying life. And I had one young man who I was told he was on the fence on whether he wanted to join the gang or not, and when I took him to uh, the Griffith Park to the observatory, I had something I wanted him to do because I know that it would make great pitches for them to put in their portfolios. And so I pointed up to the top of the hill. I said, we're going up to the top of the hills. And all of them were fussing. Uh, no, we're not going up there. I got my new tennis shoes on and everything. And I just looked at Miss Clay. And I started singing, Off to See the Wizard, the wonderful Wizard of Oz. We're off to see the wizard. And so they just followed me. And it was getting dark, and they were fussing. And we got to this particular point, and I said, look over there. It's pretty, ain't it? They said, yeah. They said, we're going to shoot here? I said, no, we're not shooting here. <laughs> so hey, we went hey, on first. Hey, Wood. Yes, yes. Hey, Wood, we're wrapping this up. Tell us how okay. the listeners can get a hold of you real quick, and I got to wrap it up. 
Okay, they can get in touch with me at Haywood at mpji.org. That is also the website for my nonprofit, which is Minority Photojournalism Institute. If they want to become Facebook friends, they can put my name in on Facebook, um, and I'll be glad to have them on the journey with me. And, you know, if some of them have some extra money, uh, they can look up on the website. They can donate to the website where I can continue because I'm now working with HBCUs, and I need to go be able to go and teach those young men and women in person. It's always better when you teach them in person. Thank you so much, Haywood Halbridge, for joining us on Let's Talk Religiously, Room for Dessert podcast. Bye for now. Bye-bye. Everybody have a good evening. Let's Talk Corlicious, Leave Room for Dessert podcast with Miss V. The core life coach will give you the tools to build resilience and activate the leader within and identify what truly matters in your life. Some years down the line, you'll look back and smile at how you thought you might not get through it. That's when you'll be proud of yourself for prioritizing your well-being and personal growth. You are the rock star that your family and kids look up to for light. Let's help you grow and evolve with Let's Talk Corelicious Leave Room for Dessert podcast with Miss V, the Core Life Coach, an unparalleled opportunity to truly live up to your fullest potential and find comfort in your own skin.